You're listening to the Panel Borders Clear Spot on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch, and you're listening to the only monthly broadcast radio show about comic books, graphic novels, and sequential art in the UK. In this episode, coinciding with the comprehensive exhibition Comics Creatrix at the House of Illustration near King's Cross in London, I'm talking to female comic book creators about their work. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Ellen Lindner about the collection of her serialised murder mystery, The Black Feather Falls. However, to start off with, I'm talking to artist Tula Lote, otherwise known as Lisa Wood, who as a comics creator has worked on such titles as Elephant Men, Bodies and Supreme Blue Rose, but is also the curator of the Thought Bubble Festival in Leeds every autumn. My interview with Tula was recorded outside the House of Illustration in King's Cross, where they're currently exhibiting the work of a hundred female comic book artists from the 18th century to the present day, including all three of my guests on tonight's show. So our interview not only covers Tula's work, but also her opinions of the show, which takes place in the gallery until May. I'm talking to uh, Tula Lote, a.k.a. Lisa Wood, artist of such comics as Bodies and uh, Supreme Blue Rose, who's one of the artists featured in Comics Creatrix, a new exhibition celebrating the work of 100 female comic book artists. You're someone who's kind of just broken into the scene over the last couple of years, and you've got a very distinctive style using kind of washes of colour on top of each other that's quite unusual in modern comics, where normally colour is just bounded by the uh, the lines of the drawings. Um, and before I started uh, recording, you were saying that illustration is perhaps something that's been more of an influence in your work than comics. So what kind of led you to become a comic book artist? Um, well, I've, I've loved comics ever since I was little. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm dyslexic, so I had trouble reading at school, and um, the, the thing that helped me growing up was comics. My dad used to take me to Batley Market and let me pick the kind of seconds that were really cheap, so I was picking like Daredevil, X-Men, mm. uh, Star Wars Weekly, that kind of stuff. So that's always been with me, like Howard Chaykin at the time, Paul mm. Smith, Arthur Rackham, all these great artists, and that's always what I wanted to do so I've, I am mainly illustrated mm. by co- uh, sorry inspired by comic books but um, it's it's kind of it's always been a thing where I've been drawn mainly to the people that kind of worked outside the system years ago like you used to have the pencilers inkers colorists and I, I love that kind of stuff but um, Really, um, the things that I loved the most growing up were the Dave McKean and Bill Sinkovich and John J. Moof and um, all, all those kind of things where it wasn't necessarily traditional. They were doing their own thing. They they were kind of taking it in their own direction. So maybe that rubbed off more on me. But, uh, but you know, I am a massive fan of the old Saturday Evening Post illustrations and, and all that kind of vintage stuff as well. So... I don't, I don't quite know where my styles come from. I think it's probably a mixture of illustration and comics. Mm. Well, it's interesting that some of the people you just mentioned, like John J. Muth and Sienkiewicz, uh, in the 80s, um, 
what we call mainstream comics, i.e. superhero comics, seemed to be far more experimental and varied in the kind of art styles you got. And then that sort of went away for about 20 years, and now it seems to be coming back again. So you, in a way, you're kind of tapping into the experimentation that was around in the 80s and now seems to be re-entering the art form. Yeah, I was thinking of this the other day, actually. I've been doing a lot more work for Marvel. Mm. And um, I was kind of, you know, the things that really inspired me growing up were the the Marvel stuff that came out that was completely the opposite of anything they were doing at the time, like Electro Assassin, where mm. they give people like Bill Sinkovich free reign and like Electro Saga with Frank Miller. I mean, that's more traditional, but he almost had free reign as well. And, and, and that's what really inspired me. And the stuff I'm doing for Marvel at the moment, I, um, I, I, kind of, I kind of feel like I'm kind of going off and doing my own thing with my strange lines and watercolours. And then they, they tell me to kind of bring it back and keep it neat again. So I, I understand that. I mean, Mar Marvel are incredible. I absolutely love them. But then I, I kind of, I always feel like I'm constrained by that a little bit and mm. that I'm not doing my, my best work when when I have to like, <laughs> sound stupid colouring the lines and stuff. <laughs> it's, I, I kind of like to keep it messy and... So I, I don't I don't feel like I'm quite there yet with Marvel. I think mm. I've only just started working with them, and I think there's always a trust issue with mm. a publisher and an artist when they take a new artist on. They're kind of, you know, like, well, we can't let it go crazy just yet. Well, I, mean, I was wondering, do you think you were self-censoring, or were you actually getting kind of editorial advice saying maybe do it more in the house style? Uh, they definitely weren't saying that. I do okay. think I do think with Marvel there is a lot of freedom, and mm. I think that they've pulled me in because they like my style. Mm. But then sometimes my style maybe is a bit too scratchy. I think there's a fine line between editors letting you go loose and mm. editors kind of pulling you in too much. And mm. you, you, as as an artist, you kind of you need that editor editorial advice. You need to know where you're going with stuff, and you need people to kind of pull you in. And then I think when you've built that relationship up. Mm. they maybe feel freer to kind of let you run with it. I, I know that's happened with other publishers um, and hopefully it will happen with Marvel as well. It's, there's, I probably shouldn't have started this conversation, <laughs> but it's kind of a positive one. It's yeah. lovely. It's, I love working for Marvel. Um, but it, it's always like that at the beginning. It's kind of, it's you getting to know your editor, mm. isn't it? And vice versa. Mm. Them knowing how far they can let you go with the craziness. <laughs> Well, I think the first time I saw your work was as an artist on Elephant Men. Yeah. Um, was that your first uh, published work or had you done any sort of self-published stuff before then? Um, yeah, I actually did some stuff for the Thought Bubble anthology. Ah, okay. um, so um, I worked with one of my favourite directors on that, Stuart Gordon, and um, I got him to rewrite a, a Lovecraft story, The Hound, ah. and I illustrated that for him. Huh. Um, but then I, I got to know Richard Starkins very quickly. It's like I've known him forever, but I've only <laughs> known him for like maybe four years. Um, and he wanted to bring me on board for some Elephant Men stuff. And I, I love him to bits. He's amazing. And he kind of sparked off my whole career, really. I owe him so much. Um, so that that is the first kind of major published stuff I did mm. with Image through, through Richard. And Richard's opened so many doors for me. I mean, when I worked with Gail after that and various other people, it was all kind of Richard recommended me to do stuff. So it's mm. really nice you pulled up Elephant Man mm. on that. Uh, I was really, really happy to do that. Well, it does seem that the work of yours that we've seen so far is quite often something that straddles different genres. For example, Elephant Men 
you know, to pitch it to someone, it's um, kind of like a Blade Runner cyberpunk type universe, but with anthropomorphic half human, yeah. half animal characters. So the mashup of those two is quite unusual. And then you worked on Supreme Blue Rose, which is set within uh, a superhero universe. It's continuing kind of Alan Moore's take on uh, superheroes in different realities meeting each other but it's not done as a traditional superhero comic it has kind of a feeling of a kind of conspiracy thriller so it's looking at semi-familiar genres but from a different angle do you think that's the kind of approach that suits your work because you're bringing a kind of a painterly aspect to uh, making comics um maybe in a way um i i do like to do do things differently but i think really uh, I could work with any kind of story as long as it grabs me as long as long as there's a lot of focus on characterization it's something that I feel I feel involved with I, I, mm. I, I can I can work with that I'm, I'm fine doing that I think as long as I I feel like I have the freedom to take it in my own direction without worrying because because I am still new to this quite a lot I, I tend to sometimes I do, I do my least favorite work when I, I feel like I'm fulfilling what other people want more rather than going in, in the direction I want to go in. So um, feeling like I have that freedom to really do whatever I want and experiment, that, that's when I love working the most, no matter what genre it is. But I'm a massive fan of horror and sci-fi, so. <laughs> What what are the tools that you use? Because the, the kind of layering effect um, that you do, certainly on projects like Supreme, has kind of the quality of layered watercolour, but presumably there's a lot of digital going on as well. Yeah. Um, when I first started doing Supreme, I was doing ink, ink outlines, uh, scanning them, and then I'd have kind of like loads of watercolour textures I made, and I'd scan those and keep layering them over the top and then working into them with colour. Mm. Um, so that that's mainly what I've been doing. But then as Supreme went on with deadlines, I ended up doing my lines um, digitally most mm. of the time, still using a little bit bit of ink um, so that that's the way I'm working at the moment with Wicked and the Divine issue 13 that I did that was all digital mm. so um, on my my line art I was using in Photoshop and then using the same technique with Supreme where I was filling it over with my watercolor layers and working back into it constantly mm. um, with more time I would prefer to go back to ink and I've been doing that um, a bit with Heartless my mm. new um, comic with Warren Ellis for Image mm. um, and um, really, that's how I, I enjoy working more. You, you can get a lot of wonderful lines and mistakes with ink that you'd never get with digital as much as I've tried. And mm. that, that can't be replicated, really. Mm. And plus, you have something to sell at the end, which is always <laughs> clever when you're an artist. Absolutely. <laughs> um, so your work is featured in this exhibition, uh, Comics Creatrix, uh, which seems to be on at a very pertinent time because Angoulême only happened uh, a couple of weeks ago where there was very much a public debate of why aren't female artists being celebrated more for contributing to the comic book medium but presumably the show has been in the planning longer yeah. than that but I guess you know wearing your other hat as uh, the curator um, of Thought Bubble um, bringing female comic book creators uh, front you know amongst their male peers is something that you've always been involved with anyway yeah. in terms of um, bringing attention to people who make comics yeah absolutely <laughs> I, I set up Thought Bubble um, nearly 10 years ago now and back then it, it, it was a lot worse I mean the, there are still there are still issues now getting getting females in into 
the the medium and but it but it's improving massively like the last two years it's it's just been incredible uh, 10 years ago it, it, it was quite different and so one one of the things in my head as as I, I was planning the thought bubble stuff was to try and um, pro- profile female comic artists a lot more and so we we commission a female illustrator every year to do our festival image which we use for our all our marketing mm. and everything and I kind I kind of never I never really make a big song and dance about that because I I'm always worried about the uh, inclusivity as mm. well I kind of. I think there can be some downfalls to just kind of featuring females in comics, yeah. but I haven't decided that I want to change that yet. Mm. So this year will be another female artist creating our main image, which mm. should be out in two weeks. Um, but yeah, it's always been super important to me. We we try and have panels focused around that, and we, we try and highlight those areas. Just inclusivity in general, not just women, but uh, across the board, it's super important to us at Fort Bubble. Mm. I mean, what's interesting looking at an exhibition like this, if one tries to make gross uh, generalizations about female comic book artists versus male comic book artists, it seems quite appropriate that this exhibition is on at the House of Illustration because it seems that an influence on female comic book artists seems to be fine art and illustration, at least looking at the work that's on display here, compared to male comic book artists who perhaps look more at other comic book artists. Absolutely, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm not quite sure I had to answer that, but I completely recognise it as well. Um, I guess it's because there's been, I mean, if you, if you go way back to the 70s, there were things like Jackie <laughs> before my time, <laughs> but there were things like Jackie and stuff where there were kind of romance comics aimed at, at, at girls mm. that that maybe could have caught on back then, but then from the 80s onwards, it, it was very male-centric, so... Mm. It's always going to be the case. The the thing that the 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 genres and um, stories that the me- medium are producing are going to inspire certain people. And if there are no real strong female characters mm. represented within that, um, women may may not want to buy into that. And because there's been such a a wealth of stories that have come about in the last. 10 5 years with, with comic books where they cover everything mm. women are more interested they are more involved and um, they're going to be inspired by that and that that will inspire the next generation to want to create things more and so it's a it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that's where there's so many more women do, doing this now mm. cool thank you very much oh you're welcome <laughs> tula lote's work is on display alongside 99 other female comic book artists at the House of Illustration near King's Cross Station in London. Tula herself will be doing a mini tour of the north of England on the 20th and 21st of February alongside Kieran Gillen and Jamie McKelvey, creators of the graphic novel and comic book series The Wicked and the Divine. The three will be appearing in four travelling man stores in Manchester from noon until 2pm on February the 20th and Leeds from 4 to 6pm the same day. Then on Sunday the 21st, they'll be at Travelling Man in Newcastle from 12 till 2pm and then in York from 4 to 6pm. You can find more information about Tula Lote's work by going to tulalote.com. That's T-U-L-A-L-O-T-A-Y.com. And you can find more information about the Thought Bubble Festival in Leeds, organised by Lisa Wood and others, by going to thoughtbubblefestival.com.
including information about the 2016 festival programme and the academic side of things, the Comics Forum, information about which will be updated on their website soon. Comics Creatrix, 100 Women Making Comics, runs until May at the House of Illustration near King's Cross in London. Sandwiched between a new Waitrose and Central St. Martin's School of Art and Design in Granary Square, Comics Creatrix is running alongside the art of David Lem, who's depicting the King's Cross area using shapes and symbols, and a fascinating exhibition of the art of Julia Child, represented for a change in three dimensions as she takes on the milieu of doll's houses. You can find more information about the gallery by going to houseofillustration.org.uk and to read a sample of the many graphic novelists and female comic book artists on display in Comics Creatrix. Why not download the Sequential app for iPads where you can obtain for free a 200-page selection of the work of many of the female artists featured in the exhibition. Next, here's my interview with Ellen Lindner, an American comic book artist who has also worked in the UK, and we're discussing her latest graphic novel, The Murder Mystery, The Black Feather Falls, recorded in a busy tea shop in Kendall during last year's Lakes International Comic Art Festival, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. We're in Brew Brothers at the Lakes International Comic Art Fringe Festival. This is one of the events that isn't in the program, (laughs) exactly. I've come over because uh, Soaring Penguin Press, which Mm. is uh, my publisher Mm. in England, they have um, set up a lovely table in the White Elephant Emporium, and they have my brand new book, which is Mm. called The Black Other Falls. It's a mystery set in Jazz Age London. And I'm really pleased. This is such a beautiful part of the country. I've never been here before. Tea and cake are both excellent. So uh, yeah, so that's that's my story. That's what I'm doing here. The Black Feather Falls is a London-based Edwardian murder mystery in which a couple of flapper girls, uh, intrigued by the discovery of a black feather, go on a trip around the UK to solve a murder. Where did the idea come from? Well, first off, I mean, like so many people, I just adore mysteries. Um, I grew up reading a shameful amount of Agatha Christie. I'm sure it's warped my brain forever. Um, And when I was living in England, I was working from home in South London. And I started to listen to some really fantastic um, adaptations of Dorothy L. Sayers' work that the BBC recorded in the 70s and 80s, I believe. And those mysteries are just so wonderful. Um, And the adaptations are great, but the books are even better. They have so much detail. Um, They tie together financial chicanery, um, 1920s overindulgence of all kinds, um, and of course, really hard to solve murders, some of which are are based on real murders, um, which remained unsolved during her lifetime. And so, um, yeah, I'm a huge fan. And also, um, when I was living in London, I lived in London for eight years, and basically, um, it's a city that was transformed during World War II and, and subsequently. And I became really interested in the little pockets of 1920s and 1930s London that still remain. Um, and that kind of became the, the starting off point um, for the book. 
And also, the, the book is about an American expatriate, mm. um, kind of fleeing secrets, fleeing secrets that are too too painful to just to, to kind of stick around for. Yeah. And so she um, she's come from the American Midwest to the UK for personal reasons. And so while my past is not nearly so dark, <laughs> I can identify with the expatriate experience. Mm. And so all this kind of came together. And that's uh, basically where the Black Feather Falls started. Mm. And another influence, at least, seemed apparent to me was uh, John Buckham, because yes. the 39 Steps seems Definitely. very much an influence. The journey to Scotland, the discovery of mysteries and... Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, yeah, Buckin, also lots of Hitchcock. Mm. Um, stuff like The Lady Vanishes, mm. you know, where there's always a story below the apparent story. Um, and, yeah, I mean, part of it is also just wish fulfillment. I mean, I would love to travel to all these remote places, but yeah. I seem to kind of just go on a track between London and New York <laughs> endlessly, which is, is, is lovely, but um, it's always fun to travel through your work. Mm. And researching the kind of Scot- Scottish Isles, the Hebrides, um, was really fascinating. Mm. What did the research involve? Because obviously you've got a lot of period costumes, the way that London looked like in the 1920s. Of course, yeah. Did you go through photographic uh, records? And Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, photographic records. Also, um, there is a huge... I. It's amazing. I mean, the 1920s have such a kind of fandom unto themselves. The aesthetic is still so popular. And so researching that um, was not very difficult. Um, I have, you know, to thank the New York Public Library, which is such a wonderful, huge resource Mm. and completely free. Um, Pretty much anybody with a valid ID can go into the, um, the really famous main branch of the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue with the lions in front. And just, you know, um, basically enjoy the privilege of interaction with a scholarly library. Mm. Um, so, yeah, libraries, I, I feel like my stories always begin with reading a lot. Um, that just seems to be my comfort zone, kind of like winkling out stories from, from a variety of sources. Um, and from there, it's just kind of synthesizing, just kind of bringing it all together. And I, I have a, I share an art studio in Kiwanis in Brooklyn, and so... Um, my studio mates and studio interns were really helpful as mm. well, bringing it all together. Mm. This is your second graphic novel to be published uh, by Soaring Penguin Press, and it's unusual, perhaps less so now because they're also doing the anthology Meanwhile, but it was the first comic, in fact, that Soaring Penguin published as opposed to graphic novel because it was serialized as four individual yes. issues. Yes. Was that something that you wanted to do because of your background in self-publishing? That's a really good question. Um, I do think that my background in self-publishing played a role Mm. because um, I know how hard it is to motivate yourself to finish a longer work. Mm. Um, Undertow took a very long time to put together. And so when I kind of signed a deal with Soaring Penguin, I I wanted it to be in a a way that would ensure that they would get Mm. a graphic novel in a reasonable period and also that I would have milestones that I could kind of hit. And um, also it's just great, you know, I feel like floppies or, you know, single issue comics are slightly underrated at the moment. Um, Distribution networks don't like dealing with them. Um, Often shops don't like dealing with them. But I think that in terms of developing as an artist, they're really crucial. If only because you take take one to a convention, you know, for example, SPX or MoCA for me in the States or, you know, um, 
going to any of the great UK conventions as well. And you get interaction with the audience. You know, you get to, to see what people react to, to see what they respond to. And I feel like that's really important. Um, so yeah, so basically, um, it, was a, it was a mix of a couple of different things. But also, um, it was fun doing the four covers. Yeah. It's, it's nice to be able to stretch stretch like that. Well, and of course, being a murder mystery, it's the kind of story that lends itself to cliffhangers. Yeah, yeah, and that's a good, it's a great challenge as a storyteller. Um, there's so many fantastic mysteries. I, I feel like you have to be a little bit humble about your own abilities. Um, but I feel like if you're a writer who kind of wants to take on a challenge, a mystery is a pretty good place to start. Mm. People who know your work from Undertow and things like the anthology Whores of Mensa are probably used to your working in black and white. Not only is Black Feather Falls in color, it's really punchy color. It's like, you know, the oh, vibrancy of neon lights and carnival <laughs> rides. And was that kind of a challenge you wanted to set yourself for this project? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd done shorter pieces in color, usually for freelance work. Mm. Um, I had done a bunch of pieces for School Library Journal in the United States in color. Um, and I've done a lot of illustration, editorial illustration in color, but um, establishing a palette and kind of sticking with it over the course of, you know, 140 mm. pages or so of comics um, was really hard. Um, but I think, you know, it'll make my next project a lot better. And I, I, I feel like the palette, it was, it was interesting to see the kind of um, mileage you could get out of a pretty limited palette. Mm. Um, I have a friend who's a really fantastic cartoonist and an amazing colorist, and she her advice is always go with limited palette. Mm. So um, <laughs> that's advice I'm passing on to all the listeners out there. Because yeah, it's it's really useful. I basically had a set of I want to say maybe 20 colors, mm. which doesn't it sounds like a lot, but it actually isn't that much, especially when the scenery goes from urban London to rural Scotland to the interior of a really garish nightclub. Mm. Um, so uh, it was it was definitely um, tricky, but it was it was I think it helped me develop as an, as an artist. And I have to it's become kind of my default palette now. Mm. Um, and so now when I get a last minute freelance gig, it's like, oh, OK, well, I've got this palette I feel really comfortable with. Mm. I'm thinking kind of tentatively about doing another Black Feather Falls. And it'd be interesting to see whether or not I could carry it over to a completely different uh, milieu. But we shall see. Oh, well, I mean, it's funny, you know, I mean, I talked about the colors being, you know, really kind of poppy. And it seems that particularly with computer coloring, when you reduce the palette, it somehow makes it brighter. If you limit yeah. yourself to a smaller number, because I guess you get those juxtapositions of certain uh, hues, yeah. then it's more noticeable. You know. Yeah, and also, um, so the Black Feather Falls first appeared on Activate, which is a Brooklyn-based um, web kind of consortium for comics. And um, seeing the same colors on the web, on the page, and also with different finishes on the page, mm has also been a learning process because it looks dramatically different depending on where it's it's popped up. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I'm not, I don't know if I'm a natural colorist, but um, I, again, like, I've always gotten really good advice from other creators, and the best advice I ever got about color was just to keep doing it because yeah. eventually you'll improve and you'll become mm. more adept with it. And I think that's something that goes with everything in comics. It's, it's such... You're pulling on so many different skill sets constantly. Mm. I feel like it's just a question of kind of 
uh, sticking with it <laughs> and trying to um, trying to improve always. I mean, I'm still working in black and white. Um, Horse of Mensa has now become this trumpet, um, and it's but it's still the same aesthetic, and so I still work in black and white for that. Okay. Well, even for that, I mean, it's it's conceivable that we could do a color issue. So. Where did the black feather itself come from? Because if you talk to I don't know, maybe a Brit, someone who's worked particularly yeah. at the Imperial War Museum, about feathers in the Edwardian times. You think of the white feather that yeah. was given to people who were accused of being traitors and pacifists yes. for not engaging in the First World War. Was that the kind of legacy that you wanted to evoke? Yes, and that, that is actually, um, that's something that's discussed in the, mm. the, the novel. And actually that sort of lingering association becomes a bit of, to use it, it becomes a red herring actually because it's hard for the characters to kind of figure out what it means and actually when they do find out what it means it's something pretty unpleasant <laughs> I, w I would hate to spoil it for the, the reader but um, it does have a completely different meaning in this particular context um, because the, the, the story kind of revolves around um, some kind of like a kind of a, ro a rogue unit in World War One who did not behave very honorably, and so um, they they've kind of ironically co-opted this 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 um, this particular symbol. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I sometimes feel a bit silly for even engaging with World War One because it, it was such an appalling and incredibly damaging conflict. Mm. But unfortunately, I feel that. I mean, I, I'm very much a pacifist, and so um, I feel that um, all wars have this ex extremely seamy underbelly, and mm. it's it's worth remembering because otherwise we get suckered into these ridiculous conflicts, not not realizing how damaging they are to our society and to the people who go through these these conflicts. Um, my father is a Vietnam War veteran, for example, and it's okay. it's a it's a very troubling legacy. Mm. And so, um, I think if there's anything political in my work, you know, being anti-war is a big part of it. Because even, I mean, it's it's um, World War One just sounds like it was such incredible hell to endure. Mm. And um, in this case, it's it's basically per perverted someone's mind. You know, they've mm. basically gone insane. Um, because of the contrast between their life before and the life in the trenches. Mm. And that's a sort of um, dehumanization that is unfortunately a part of warfare. Mm. So, um, so yeah, so that symbology was definitely very much in my mind. Um, but it does mean something different in the book. Yeah. I will keep that a secret. <laughs> well, I mean, thinking of your depictions of the dark underbelly of society and culture, your previous graphic novel, Undertow, which is set in and around Coney Island in the 1960s? It's, it's the very, very early 1960s. Okay. You have characters who are drug users, you have a character who <laughs> commits suicide. I mean, it feels like you're kind of exploring the flip side of the American dream. You have the gloss, but then yeah. you have the undertow, you know. Yeah, and um, again, whenever I talk about undertow, it's, it's very much kind of born out of this experience of moving back to, to New York City after, so I grew up in the suburbs of New York City, but both of my parents grew up in the city, and coming back uh, to the area after uni and kind of experiencing places that where they had been kids, basically, um, was a really fascinating experience. Um, yeah, and I feel like with the, that part of the 60s, um, 
there, de there have definitely been examinations of it. And at the time, there's a, there are a lot of films and books about New York in the, 90, er, the early 60s, which are extremely disturbing. Mm. Um, and it was a very tr troubled time. Um, but it's fascinating for that. And I became really fascinated by the kind of visual um, records of that period. Photojournalism was mm. kind of at its, possibly at one of its heights in the United States at that time. And there are these really fantastic photographs taken of Coney Island and of, of the kind of like gang culture there. Mm. Um, so yeah, I get, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, I'm a classic kind of, uh, suburban kid who grew up in just a totally quiet, boring place and <laughs> is now kind of trawling for... <laughs> darkness. Yeah, for, dar for darkness, wherever, wherever I can find it. But that's the fun thing. I think that's the thing with murder mysteries in particular. You know, when you think about Agatha Christie, she's dealing with situations that seem idyllic. You know, beautiful British country houses, um, small villages, but there's always a sort of dark side. And that's what I love about, um, I guess, Miss Marple in particular. Poirot is in the police service, so he's seen all sorts of mm. craziness. But Miss Marple is just an amateur psychologist, basically. Mm. And she's really good at figuring out, like, oh, you're like that guy who, you know, was the terror of St. Mary Mead in 1925, you know. Um, I feel like anywhere there's kind of a, or stuff like Blue Velvet, mm. you know, there's always kind of a, an underbelly to mm. explore. So were there many um, of the storylines in Undertow uh, influenced by biographical details that you took off your parents and their friends or reminiscences of stories that they'd heard? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so in terms of reminiscences, I, I foolishly asked my mom to, <laughs> to tell me about her. Well, I asked her to, um, to provide me with some info. Mm about her, her life as a teenager going to Coney Island. And I sent her this questionnaire, <laughs> which in retrospect seems really silly, but it was a very detailed questionnaire. <laughs> and she completely disregarded it and wrote this page-long kind of stream of consciousness evocation of it that was really shocking, <laughs> I have to say. Mother, and so, you never did that. Yeah, well, uh, and she's, I mean, she's, uh, she's a Brooklyn lady. She's, she's, she's been out there, you know, enjoying the, uh, the nighttime. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mom. <laughs> but yeah, I was really shocked. So, I don't know. Yeah, I think I've, I've definitely had to, I've, I, if anything, I've pulled back okay, <laughs> from wow. the, the sordid, the sordid reality. <laughs> My husband's eyebrows are so high right now. <laughs> he's, he's having difficulty imbibing his beverage in a civilized manner. This interview is sponsored by Coniston Brewery Co. <laughs> and by Brew Brothers. In terms of your comic book influences, uh, Undertow in particular seems a little bit of a homage to the works of the Hernandez brothers, yeah. who very much also dealt with the street people in America and the lives that didn't normally get explored on the comic book page. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think, you know, it would be really difficult, especially working kind of indie comics mm. in particular, to not be influenced by uh, Gilbert and Jaime Hernandez. I mean, they're so huge. Um, and I love how personal their work is, you know, um, I actually love Gilbert's kind of crazy Latin American, mm. occasionally very political mm. narratives as much as I do, you know, Jaime's like girl gang 
uh, you know, stories. I, I think they're both brilliant. Um, all, all I can remember though is uh, I used to volunteer at um, the sadly now defunct Words and Pictures Museum in Northampton, Massachusetts when I was at, at uni. And there was a show there of Jaime Hernandez's originals. And it just traumatized me for life. They're so perfect. Mm. I mean, maybe <laughs> maybe he uh, has a you know Dorian Gray style stash of all the the disastrous ones, but yeah. the ones I saw, they were impeccable. Mm-hmm. It's just basically kind of like this Mozartian you know ability to just take what's in your brain and just get it out on the page so perfectly. Mm. So. I, I admire them, but you know, it's more of a sort of looking up <laughs> kind of like aspirational mm. admiration. They're just so accomplished and so wonderful. So yeah, I'm a fan. <laughs> yeah. Conversely, uh, moving away both literally and geographically from your American influences, uh, a lot of people know you as being a denizen of the British small press. I mean, how would you say that your experiences in this country helped shape you as a comic book creator? Interesting. Um, yeah, I spent eight years in England, and in the course of that, I um, I lived exclusively in South London, in Oval. And at one point, I um, I'm, a, I'm a very socially awkward person, and so I kept on kind of like meeting people and then not meeting them. It was very kind of like there were little events, and I keep on trying to like. I'd just be this kind of like, you know... You'd only chat to people in coffee shops if there's a microphone in front of you. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's actually a prerequisite for all of my discussions. Um, but it was, so it was a gradual process. I think if I, you know, I, I always wish I had a little bit more, a little bit more charm to throw at people. But over, gradually I met a lot of really fantastic people. And I, I did a master's at Camberwell and I met um, my future studio mates at Flea Station. So Sarah McIntyre and Gary Northfield, mm. as well as the wonderful Lauren O'Farrell, who's not a cartoonist, but was part of our community. She's mm. an, a wonderful knitting artist. And so, um, and then I became involved with uh, Horse of Mensa, which is a um, is an anthology edited by Mardu, uh, who's a, a Mancunian, um, well, a lady from Macclesfield who now lives in St. Louis. Mm. And that was a great community to get involved with, with uh, Jeremy Day, as well, and Lucy Sweet. And then I think a lot of it has to do with anthologies, actually, which is why I'm such a big believer in anthologies, because mm. I met loads of people through Horse of Mensa. I met loads of people through Comics Reader. Um, and then when I kind of took over Horse of Mensa and turned it into Strumpet, just so we wouldn't get crazy letters <laughs> from Mensa anymore, um, you know, I met lots of lots more people. Mm. And I really, um, I really miss the scene here. Um, it's lovely coming back to, um, to to the lakes and you know meeting. I, I, I had no idea so many wonderful UK cartoonists would be here. Was, walking into the bar last night was like this giant London Comics reunion, <laughs> which is is really brilliant. Um, so I think part of it was um, going freelance, you know, working, being able to finish Undertow. Part of it was getting involved with Free Station, and then part of it was getting involved in these wonderful. UK anthologies um, and just getting to know people through that. Um, but yeah, the, the, the eight years I spent here was incredibly um, important. And also Camberwell, um, Janet Woolley, who's the, the MA tutor on illustration there, was always super encouraging. Um, and, you know, uh, meeting Sarah was just transformative. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it was, I, I, I always think of myself as a New Yorker, but 
when I think of it, I've spent so much more time in London <laughs> than I have anywhere else at this point. Hmm. Um, and we still we we still own a flat in the city, and so who knows? I may still I may re- redescend one day. <laughs> um, just like pop over and terrify terrify cartoonists of London once again. So you've been officially forewarned. Fingers crossed. Ellen Linda, thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure. For more information about Ellen Lindner's work, please go to littlewhitebird.com, where you can find images and extracts from such comics as The Black Feather Falls, Undertow and The Strumpet, and buy copies from her online shop. For more information about the publishers of Undertow and The Black Feather Falls, please go to soaringpenguinpress.com, where both of Ellen's graphic novels are available alongside the excellent anthology title Meanwhile, featuring a new strip by Mark Stafford and David Hine, as well as the latest instalments of Strange Haven by Gary Spencer Millage. For more information about the Lakes International Comic Art Festival, where my interview with Ellen Lindner was recorded, please go to comicartfestival.com, and the next LICAF will be taking place between the 14th and 16th of October. Before that, there are various comic book events taking place across London, including this year's London Super Comic Convention, more of which anon, and signings in various shops. On Wednesday the 10th of February, David Hine will be signing his new comic, Second Sight, published by Aftershock Comics, at Orbital, 8 Great Newport Street, near Leicester Square Tube. That's on Wednesday the 10th from 6pm, and then Friday the 12th, from 5pm brings Nick Marino and Daniel Aruda Massa who will be signing their comic Holy F Asterix CK. For more information about all Orbital events please go to orbitalcomics.com. On Tuesday the 16th of February Kieran Gillen will be appearing at Peckham Library discussing his process alongside Gosh Comics Stephen Walsh. Peckham Library can be found at 122 Peckham Hill Street, SE15 5JT, and the Q&A with Kieran starts at 6.30pm. At Gosh Comics itself, they have their regular Capers event taking place on the 17th of February from 7pm, a reading group for lovers of superhero titles, and this month they're discussing Crisis on Infinite Earths. Capers is taking place on the 17th from 7pm. Then on the 25th of February, Glyn Dillon will be in the store, signing copies of the new book, The Art of Star Wars The Force Awakens, a movie which Glyn worked on, designing props and costumes. He'll also be there to sign copies of his excellent graphic novel The Now of Brown, and it's a rare opportunity to talk to the artist about both his film and comics work. That's on the 25th of February from 7.30pm. Then on the 27th of Feb, there's a signing and launch party for the third issue of Beast Wagon by Owen Michael Johnson. That's taking place in Gosh from 2pm. And you can find out more information about all Gosh events by going along to the store at 1 Berwick Street in Soho or visiting their website goshlondon.com. This month's main London event, though, is the aforementioned London Super Comic Con, the largest comic convention to take place in the capital every year, featuring guests from across the world, including top names from both the British and European scenes. 
This year is no exception, and guests include Brian Bolland, Frank Cho, David Finch, Meredith Finch, Mike Zeck, David Ayer, Eddie Campbell, who will only be there on the Saturday, Howard Chaikin, Katie Cook, Duncan Figredo, Gary Frank, Kevin O'Neill, Sean Phillips, Yannick Paquette, and many, many more. There are a variety of panel discussions taking place at the London Super Comic Con on both days of the weekend of the 20th and 21st of February, with events such as How to Break into Marvel Comics on Saturday the 20th of February with C.B. Sabulski, the brand manager of Marvel Comics, who will also be discussing Star Wars comics with Katie Cook and Alex Maleev. Creators Yannick Paquette, Jill Thompson and Marv Wolfman will be discussing the DC multiverse, while creators Mark Buckingham and John Tottleben will be discussing Marvel's reprints of the classic superhero title Miracle Man. There's also qualifiers for the London Super Costume Championships, celebrating the work of the amazing cosplayers who come to the event every year. On the Sunday, there are panel discussions on Batgirl, featuring Babs Tarr and Cameron Stewart, Spider-Man, with Humberto Ramos and Ryan Stegman, the Teen Titans, with Ian Churchill, Marv Wolfman and more, as well as educational events on how to buy and sell comics and art, Scott Williams talking about how to ink Jim Lee, and advice on cosplay fabrication. The London Super Comic Con takes place at the Excel Centre in the Docklands, and you can buy tickets by going to londonsupercomicconvention.com. Panel Borders was recorded, edited, and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and you can find all previous episodes on my blog, www.panelborders.wordpress.com. And we'll be back again on the second Tuesday of next month on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. If you're a fan of Resonance FM and want to support the many wonderful programs that the station produces, next week is Resonance's annual fundraising event with special programs all week promoting ways that you can get involved in fundraising for the station and giving more information on how you can contribute to the Resonance fundraising auction. Items that will be going into the Resonance auction that fans of comics and science fiction might like include Doctor Who and Sherlock Holmes audio CDs, futuristic war novels, signed poster of The Green Goblin from Spider-Man by classic Swamp Thing artist Bernie Wrightson, and a signed copy of the Quad film poster for Dogma by Kevin Smith. For more information about all things Resonance FM, please go to resonancefm.com. And many of the station's DJs, including Robin the Fog, an erstwhile presenter of Panel Borders, Zoe Baxter, host of Lucky Cat, and comic book artist DJ Food, will be spinning the decks at the Book and Record Bar, 20 Norwood High Street, in South London, on the 19th of February from 8pm. So if you enjoy the output of Resonance FM, please go to their website and contribute, or go to one of the many fundraising events, such as these DJ spots on the 19th of February in the Book and Record Bar, to help support the station. Thanks for listening.